Amen. Well, good morning. If you're visiting with us or if you have a prayer request, you'll see the Connect cards in the pews there. You can pick that up, fill that out, place it in the offering plate where we place your offerings after the service so we can be praying for you and get your information. I do have a, a few announcements. I want to mention and I want to thank those who decorated the sanctuary and for the beautiful poinsettia plants that are, you see in the windows. They'll be available um, on the 26th after the service, if you'd like one. There are limited number. There's 23 plants. You can sign up um, and see more details in the bulletin. Also want to mention for the youth group tonight, it'll be at Reformed Presbyterian Church in Ephrata. If you need a ride for that, they're playing a game of what's called Underground Church. I'll have to ask Nathan what that is. But 6.30 to 8.30, they're having that. So if you need a ride, make sure you get a hold of Nathan. You can see him after the service or call. Uh, with that, our, I'd like to invite up Ben and Jocelyn Strobel for her Advent candle lighting. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches that God is three divine persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet, John's recorded words of Jesus show us how close the identification is between the Father and the Son. As Jesus said, I and the Father are one. In Christ, we can truly see the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy as the one who is the everlasting Father, God in the flesh. Isaiah 9:6. for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Our call to worship is from 1 Chronicles 16, reading responsively. Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim his salvation day after day. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Our great God and our heavenly Father, we come now indeed to praise you here on your day, we ask, Lord, that you'd be present with us, that you'd send your spirit, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth, that you'd prepare our hearts, that you would delight in our praise. And we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Amen. The Old Testament saints lived through many sufferings and trials. They lived under the law given at Sinai that could not justify. They lived under the tyranny of Satan, and we likewise suffer many, many miseries. The law, through, through the law, we have knowledge of sin, and we also are harassed by, the, by Satan daily for the many failings we bring to the Lord. And we could be tempted to withhold our confessions, but let us not forget our great hope that we have in our Savior. Hear this call to confession. Remember that our Lord Jesus can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, since in every respect he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with boldness approach the throne of grace and confess our sins against God and our neighbor, praying together using the words printed in the prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us, and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and please you in every way. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear these words of assurance taken from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Brothers and sisters, if by faith you have repented of your sins, then know for certain that you are forgiven and you are blessed. And if you have rested in Christ alone, for your forgiveness, then know for certain that the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds you. And with the psalmist, we can say, be glad in heart. Rejoice, O righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Thanks be to God. Let us now confess our faith together using the words adapted from the Ligonier Statement of Christology printed in our bulletin. Christians, what do we believe? We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, 
he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. You may all be seated. It is with a heavy heart that we now turn to the time of intercessory prayer. Uh, it was brought to my attention uh, about the devastation that has been occurring in the South uh, with the great storms and hundreds of people dead. And so we want to be praying for that. But it, uh, last evening, uh, December 11th, we received the news this morning that Ed Frankhauser died as well as Phil Alcorn. So indeed, it is with sorrow in our hearts that we turn to our God. Now let us bow our heads together and confess our sorrows to him. Our Father, we, we know that you do all that you please in heaven and on earth and in the seas and the deeps. And that makes it all the more hard sometimes, Father, to look at the, at the sorrow and the devastation and the calamities that go on around us. And we, we grieve to hear that there are many families who have lost loved ones, have lost homes and property, have had their lives literally torn apart by these storms going on in the South. But we also know, Father, that you turn all things according to your will for the good of those whom you have called and loved in Christ Jesus. So we pray, Father, that you will use this storm for whatever you intend, that you will turn it to your will so that uh, many will become strengthened through hardship and through suffering, and that they will come to know you better. And may the church be able to uh, be the hands of Christ in, uh, into the lives of so many people that need it, Father, in us. Families grieve the loss of loved ones. Uh, Father, we pray for your comfort to those people. And Lord, we, we are especially grieved in our hearts to hear uh, about the loss of these two dear saints, Ed and Phil. And we grieve, Father, for uh, the families that now need to figure out what life looks like without the, their loved ones. So Father, we pray that you will make yourself readily available to them in their grief. We pray that as you have promised to be a stronghold, Father, that you'll be a stronghold for these people. That as Christ, we know, weeps for us in our sorrows, that he will make him, that his affections for them will be made known. And as the Spirit can come as our comforter, may we rest in the comfort that comes from the Spirit alone. And Father, there are no words that make death okay. Death is not okay. Death is the great enemy and sin, it's uh, lieutenant. And Father, it hurts so much when it comes close to home. But help us all to continue to place our hope 
in Jesus Christ, who by his death put death to death, and by his resurrection has assured that we will be raised with him. And though we missed our loved ones, we know we will see them again, that we will rejoice with them in glory. Father, we pray that as a church, we will be able to comfort those who grieve. We thank you for this blessed gift of fellowship that we have. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
forgot to update the scripture reference in the bulletin. We're going to be looking at Acts 28. We looked at Acts 27 last week. We'll be reading verses 1 to 16. This is part three in our series on Paul the last years. Reading verses 1 to 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fasted on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has now allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place where lands belonged to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead. Putting into Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived in Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putioli. There, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Father, we pray as we reflect upon this uh, historical event, this story in the life of the Apostle Paul, that you would teach us as well. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's been a long journey, but Paul has finally reached his destination. If you go back, you remember sometime in A.D. 56, springtime, he resolved in the spirit to go through Macedonia. We read about this in Acts 19, in Achaia, and to Jerusalem. And then he said, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Well, in the winter of A.D. 57, Paul wrote uh, these words to the Romans. He wrote, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, That without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. 
in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And that was the winter of A.D. 57. In the summer of A.D. 57, remember Jesus spoke these words to Paul. This is from Acts 23. The Lord, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And then Paul gets on a ship. And it's A.D. 59 now, and he's in this storm, the text we studied last week, and it looked like all was going to be lost, but an angel appeared and said to him, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar, you must arrive in Rome. Paul has persevered, he has reached his destination, he is finally in Rome, Jesus' prophecy that we read about in Acts, verse 8, is fulfilled. We, the disciples will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and they will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth, according to Acts, is indeed Rome. And so the story of the Acts of the Apostles, or as many say, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, reaches its peak now with Paul's arrival. When we turn to Acts 28, before he actually enters Rome, we start out in Malta. Um, when the ship was wrecked, all those on board, as the Lord promised to Paul, remember that they would all survive. They get to shore safely. We read in verse 1, as we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta, a small island off the boot of Italy. It's about 60 miles south of Sicily and 320 miles from Rome. And the islanders were of Phoenician ancestry, and they spoke the Phoenician dialect. And what's interesting is that to the Greeks and to the and Romans, Phoenicians were despised. They were considered barbarians because they spoke the Phoenician dialect. And yet here we read that they gave this warm welcome to Paul and the rest of the Roman crew. It was unusual. We read verse 2. The native people showed us unusual Kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Now, while Paul wants to return this hospitality, and he joins in, he picks up some sticks to gather for the fire, and as he does that, we read in verse 3, a viper comes out because of the heat and fastens on his hand. And so we, we go through the history of Paul. Paul was beaten. <laughs> he was left for dead. He was arrested. He was... Uh, he was tried. He endured a two-week-long journey on a ship that ended in a shipwreck. We read that he had many shipwrecks, in fact, in his time. And he's finally able to sit down. People are showing him some hospitality. He wants to be nice in return and help with this warm fire. And, well, he gets bit by a viper. And Paul can't catch a break. Um, it, uh, but here's the point and why I believe this is told to us is that like the storm and like the shipwreck, the snake bite is used for the spreading of the gospel. It's an important part. Look at verse 4. Remember the native people there, they saw the creature hanging from his hand. So here's Paul, he's helping out and he's got this viper hanging from his hand. And an immediate conclusion, no doubt this man's a murderer. Uh, though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. And so they jump to this conclusion using their pagan presupposition that the gods, 
And why do I say the gods? Well, justice there is capitalized, if you see in your text. It, it, it's not talking about justice as in a sense of acting justly. It's capitalized because the translation of the Greek word translates the name of the Greek goddess. Diki is how it's pronounced. At least that's what YouTube told me. Diki, um, the daughter of Zeus. And the Maltese people believed that she orchestrated this whole thing because Paul needed to be punished because he was guilty of some type of crime. That's what they came to the conclusion. And in their conclusion, well, he must be a murderer. And, and however, God in his mercy, and they don't understand, but God in his mercy is fulfilling the promise we re- you read about in Mark 16 that the apostles will pick up serpents and they will not be harmed. We read about that. Paul's life is spared here. He simply shakes off the viper, drops it in the fire, and he suffers no harm. And so now the same people who said that's a murderer and justice, the God justice is going to uh, kill him, they conclude that Paul himself is a God. Look at verse 6. They were waiting for him to swell up. He doesn't. But when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come on them, they changed their minds and said that he was a God. It's pretty quick, pretty big change of opinion. In the span of minutes, they went from Paul the murderer to Paul the God. Now, we laugh at that, and it is kind of funny, especially the way it's, it's spelled out here, pretty matter-of-factly, but it, it's not surprising really at all. And the truth is, if we're honest, we're no different. Basically, what's being said here is this. Bad things are evidence of God's punishment, and good things are evidence of God's blessings. A bad thing happened, God was punishing them, or the gods in their case. And, and then a good thing happens, oh, then he's being blessed, or in this case, he is a god. Um, it, it's instinctive of us almost, just among believers and unbelievers alike. We, we, we suffer, we see someone suffering, and we immediately come to some wild conclusion, oh, God's judging them. And we're blessed, or we see someone being blessed, and we come to another wild conclusion, I must be a real favorite of God. There's an example of this mindset in the Gospels. In John chapter 9, we read that Jesus and his disciples passed by a man who was born blind. And the disciples say this, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so their, their argument is that obviously this man sinned in some way or his parents did that he would go through this suffering. And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God may be displayed in him. And the reason this man suffered blindness was because God wanted to display his glory through his life. It had nothing to do with his own sin. It had nothing to do with his parents' sin. And Paul's predicament here had nothing to do with his sin. Both the snake bite and the miracle had nothing to do with Paul's sin or with Paul being a sinless God. That being said, though, when we think of suffering, and and we talked about uh, suffering in our prayer time this morning, the loss of life of people we know and loss of life across the country because of the storms, and we think of all the suffering that goes on in this world, and, and, and we wonder why. Why so much suffering, and what's the purpose of it? Well, the Bible gives us many explanations, and I think it's worthy, at least here now, after going through all that Paul suffered, to name some of them. Dr. Boyce gives us five. I thought I would use those five. First is common suffering. 
We live in a world that's full of sin. And so we're going to suffer in this world full of sin. That's why bad things happen. Because we live in a sinful world. That's just common suffering. Uh, Second, there is corrective suffering. We're told in Scripture that sometimes when we go astray, God brings hardship into our lives. He disciplines, we're told in Hebrews 11, those whom he loves. He's treating us as sons. And so we suffer in order to bring a corrective to our life, to get our attention. And then there's constructive suffering. Romans tells us that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And so the hard things in this life that we face, those metaphorical storms, those metaphorical snake bites, those things bring about growth in our lives. They bring about maturity. And so the suffering that we face there is meant to bring growth. Now, I'm going to go on and share two more, but realize that some of these can overlap. Both can be happening. One could be happening at any time. Fourth, there's Christ-glorifying suffering. Remember the man born blind? We, just, we shared that as an example already. He was born blind from birth. Why? So he could bring glory to God. And that's why he was born blind. It had nothing to do with his sin. It had nothing to do with anything else. He was born blind and he was, God was glorified through it. Fifth, an example found in Scripture, boys calls cosmic suffering. Probably the best place to discover cosmic suffering is in the book of Job. You remember the story of Job. Why did he go through so much suffering? Well, there was a conversation between God and Satan. And it was ordered to demonstrate to Satan and all the angels, in fact, that a man would follow after God even if he wasn't blessed. And so God gave permission to allow Satan to cause suffering in Job's life just to prove the point. And we have no idea that that would be the case if it wasn't given to us in Scripture. And and so there's this cosmic suffering. No one could have known that's why he was suffering. In In fact, his friends tried to describe why he was suffering, and this is this, and this is that. And they had this cause and effect mentality, and none of it was correct. Um why he was going through what he was going through. And when we look at the Apostle Paul's life, we learn from all this hardship how he loved and served God. That's the lesson. He didn't give an answer, why did I get this snake bite? Why I could do this? Although we could probably point to some of the things that we just learned about suffering so he could glorify God. And, and, but in his case, that in the midst of all his difficulties, all his suffering, everything he went through, captivity and shipwrecks and hunger and cold, snake bites, nothing stopped Paul from serving God faithfully. None of it was a deterrent. See, that's the kind of man or woman God uses in a broken world. They're humble as Paul was humble. They're submissive to God as Paul was submissive. They're obedient to God despite circumstances. They're faithful to God. And this humble, submissive, obedient, and faithful apostle is a blessing to those on the island. Because he was faithful, because he didn't go in the corner and whine when things weren't going well, he was a blessing God had orchestrated it all in Paul's life. If he would have went to him years earlier and said, by the way, I think what I'm going to do is have you have three shipwrecks. And I'm not going to tell you the outcome, but how would you respond to that? 
In the midst of them, Paul responds positively. So everything in Paul's life he recognized came from God. All his trials, his shipwreck, his snake bike, all that came about was for a purpose that God had for him. And that purpose was to meet this chief Roman official on the island of Malta, at least when it comes to the snake bite. Look at verse 7. There were lands belonging to the chief official... And he received us. He heard about Paul. He received Paul. He entertains them. So this president of the island, you could say, he, he entertains them. And while they're going through this party celebrating with Paul um, and showing them hospitality, this chief official's father gets sick. And obviously uh, pretty bad. And so here's Paul, and he goes and he visits the man. And he prays for him, and he lays his hands on him, and the man is healed. And the news of that spreads. In verse 9, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases now come and are cured. They also honored us greatly, we're told. And, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Paul was here in this island, we're told in verse 11, three months it was a time of extraordinary blessing. After all that difficulty, and, and I realized the snake bite took place early on. After all that stuff that he went through that we talked about, he had this extraordinary blessings. The island has come to faith, as it were. People are, are, are hearing the gospel. It was so different from the earlier months. God has blessed his ministry. There's no way Paul at this point, would look back and say, I don't know why God delayed my arrival to Rome. I've been wanting it. Now he knows why. He's been longing for it. He told the Romans he longed for it, but it's been delayed, and we see why here he has this miraculous ministry. Despite all appearances, Paul was exactly where he needed to be and where he needed to serve, as much as he wanted to be in Rome. And in return for his faithful ministry... Uh, his crew of Roman soldiers and prisoners and shipmen were greatly honored, and they were given whatever they needed to sail. I mean, that's a blessing, a, a physical blessing, a blessing from God through these men. They were grateful, and they gave given whatever they needed to sail to Rome, says verse 10. And so they take off and sail to Rome. Look at verse 11. After three months, so that's when they were there. Uh, three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, when the twin gods, with the twin gods as a figurehead, putting into, in at Syracuse. Syracuse is the uh, capital city of Sicily, and they stayed there for three days, and they made a circuit and arrived at Regium, and that's on the very tip of the boot, you know, the toe of the boot of Italy. And after one day, a, sound wind, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, came to Potioli, which is Rome's southern port. There were found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And we came into Rome. Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And so he made it. He makes it to Rome. He came to Rome. Uh, remember, as I read in the beginning of the sermon, he longed to be with these people. 
He wrote them that letter of Romans, and he wrote how he longed to be with them. He wanted to minister to them. And the, and the Roman Christians now are happy to see him. It says the Verse 15 says, The brothers came as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns. That's 20 miles from uh, the taverns to Rome and 40 miles from Appius to Rome. They were willing to travel. They made that journey to see Paul. One, one writer explains it this way. For three years, these Roman Christians had been basking in the glories of Paul's letter to the Romans. And so their enthusiasm to meet the author is not surprising. Think of the end of the letter of Paul. He lists all these brothers and sisters um, uh, from Rome that he had close links to in some way, but he's never met them. And now here he is. He, he arrives. It's been a long journey through many toils and snares. And now these Roman Christians are saying, you know what? We'll take the 20-mile walk. We'll take the 40-mile walk in order to meet our brother Paul, in order to have this Christian fellowship. And at the sight of these brothers, at the sight of these brothers, Paul gives thanks to God because he's encouraged. He was strengthened. The Apostle Paul was strengthened by their presence. And see, strength is what Paul would need at this time. See, for the last three months in Malta, Paul was the hero. He was the celebrity. He was the center of attention. Everyone looked to him. And now he's in Rome, and the reality would begin to set in. I'm here on trial. I'm actually a prisoner. They showed him respect. We read that. But he got his own room with a guard Verse 16 tells us, but there was no denying that he was there to face trial and he would probably die um, a martyr's death for Christ's sake. And so when Christians are willing to travel so far to meet him, that would encourage his heart, and it did. They, sh- they showed how much they appreciated him, showed him how much they appreciated his letter, how much they cared for him. And so when he saw them coming, his heart kind of sung for making it possible for him to face what lies ahead. They helped him. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, this is what we read. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has already served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout all the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so in Philippians, when he writes that letter, he, he's explaining the situation he's in. Word was spreading that his arrest was serving Christ. And, and in, in response, the Christians were emboldened to preach the gospel when they heard this about Paul. Hey, Paul says, many have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. I'm much more bold to speak the word without fear. He, he had the fellowship of his brothers and sisters while under house arrest to give him strength. And they were strengthened by it. However, it wouldn't always last. It wouldn't always last. Right after speaking about Hal's imprisonment here in Philippians, when he talks about how it emboldened some, Paul goes on to say, but there were some in the Christian community who were jealous of him, and, and, and out of envy and rivalry, they preached the gospel. And the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am pure, put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. And so his imprisonment ended up having two different effects. Some people were emboldened, and they were strengthened, and some were jealous of him for whatever reason. And so confidence for some, but envy and selfish ambition for others. And years later, this is all the time he's in Rome, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy telling the difficulty. Some brother came to see him, 
and they were having a hard time finding his prison. And, 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 and so it seems that over time, the Roman Christians didn't make much effort to be with Paul. I mean, nobody kind of knew where he was stationed when he was finally in prison. Maybe they didn't go because they were fearful. Uh, maybe they just were indifferent at this point. Well, he wrote us a letter. We've talked to him. It, you know, he just seems like an ordinary guy, and they just gave up, and they didn't mind. Um, whatever the reason, Dr. Boyce says, when Paul first arrived, he was a celebrity, the great missionary. Christians screamed, streamed to see him, but then this great missionary was in prison. First, as we have here in our passage, he was placed under house arrest, but later he was imprisoned. Um, Paul seems to have lost his freedom, Dr. Boyce tells us. And as time went by, the Christians in Rome just forgot him. And so that's his future. We're in the beginning of this. That's why he needed strength. See, despite what happens to Paul later, now at least he's able to have strength and rejoice with the saints that come to greet him. He's on his way to prison. In the midst of the chains, the great apostle gives thanks to God for his brothers in Christ. It's an incredible lesson for us. You know, we support missionaries. Paul was a missionary. If you, you know, I realize he was the apostle that wrote books of the Bible, but he was a missionary, and that's how they're treating him as a missionary. And, and he needed to be encouraged. Well, if the apostle Paul needed to be encouraged... He had God talking to him. He went away for three years and was taught personally by Jesus. Angels were appearing to him. I haven't heard from our missionaries that they've spoken to angels. So I don't know if they have their words of encouragement, but how blessed would they be if they heard from you? That's, the less, that's one of the lessons here, just from the life of Paul, just from him living out his life and seeing how he interacts with the body of Christ. Uh, they need to be encouraged, and we need to be encouragers. And so don't underestimate how powerful it can be if you, if you send a note to one of our missionaries or let them know you're praying for them or, or find out uh, personal information about their ministry and reach out to them, whatever it may be. If Paul needed it, you, they need it, and we all need it. That's why Paul says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up in 1 Thessalonians. Well, what we just read here... Um, we hear Paul's interaction with the Roman church in the book of Acts. That's the last we hear of it. You know, Luke finishes the book focusing on Paul's outreach efforts to the Jewish community, and then the Jewish community reject him, and so he turns to the Gentile population. But nothing else is said about the Roman church. Nothing is said about his trial before Caesar. The book of Acts seems to close without finishing the story. The last verses read, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Almost the whole book has been dedicated to following this story. And he's going to go to Rome. He wants to go to Rome. He, he was told he's going to go to Rome. He wants to get there. He finally gets there. He's going to be able to speak to Caesar and go to trial. And nothing's mentioned. It's just dropped. Why? Well, there's been several different answers. What, what, a lot of people believe it's because, well, you know, Luke just ran out of space in the scroll. <laughs> Seems a little silly to me. A book written by the Holy Spirit that he wanted to do more, and you know, Luke's hands are tied. Um, 
And, and so what he did is he simply summarized it. That, that's one idea. Obviously, I, I don't agree with that idea. Um, but I believe the reason Luke ends it here, why the Holy Spirit ends the book here without all the information, is because the book is really not a biography about Paul. It's not really about Paul. He plays a major part, but it's not about him. The book wants us to focus our attention on what's of most importance, the gospel, the spread of the gospel that Paul preached. Now, we're going to look at the gospel that Paul preached and the importance of preaching that gospel in weeks to come as as we officially, officially begin to close out our series on Paul. However, this week, how I want to close of the sermon is by looking at the person of Paul. The book's not about directly the person of Paul, but his life is on display here, and he tells us and commands us in his book to follow his example. And so by addressing the person of Paul, we can learn something about how we are to live. Uh, It does teach us many important lessons. We've learned many of them so far. He was faithful. I've mentioned that. Faithful to God. uh, Faithful to the Scripture. He was dependent completely upon the Holy Spirit. He had a heart for all people, all people. He cared for them, not believing anyone was beyond the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preached to all. He was humble. He was obedient. He was bold. He was confident. He was godly. He lived out his biblical convictions. But maybe... At least for now, maybe the greatest lesson we learn from his life after all we've heard is that Paul never gave up. It sounds so simple, so cliche, but he never gave up. He strived to fulfill what God wanted for him, and you see all these obstacles in the way, all this suffering, all these frustrating events, and he presses on. He never gives up. He never let rejection or the hardships or the suffering get in the way of his main purpose, which was sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. He knew God was with him. He knew God cared for him. He knew he could count on God. He knew he could rest in Christ. He could trust him. And he believed in the power of the gospel. And so little things like snake bites, little things like being in a storm and almost dying, being in prison, being beaten, being left for dead as he was, shipwrecks, all these things, nothing. Didn't matter. None of it stopped him. None of it diverted his focus from preaching Christ and him crucified. And so the book ends not telling us everything so that we don't get it mixed up. That's the story of Paul. That's what Paul did. Isn't he amazing? We can look back and say, wow, we can claim him. We follow Paul. Now, it ends the way it does is because it wants us to realize that's how we are to live today. The gospel should be our main focus. The gospel should be what we proclaim. And no matter what hardships come into our life, no matter what the world says about the gospel, no matter what the world says about us, all these things, if they reject it or not, We are to remain steadfast in the midst of it. And we're to proclaim it and bear witness to Christ, proclaiming the good news that he came and died for their sins and rose again for their justification, that they too can be saved. 
Or maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I, I don't know if I believe it. Well, this is the gospel Paul preached and the one I'm proclaiming to you, that your sins can be forgiven. That Jesus Christ came to this world, and that's the message Paul proclaims, that he rose again, he lived for you, he died for you, he rose again, that you can be forgiven if you believe. And no matter what you say to me about it, no matter what hardship, my prayer is that you and me, we all, in the power of the Holy Spirit, will never give up proclaiming the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel and for the glorious example you give us in the Apostle Paul. And we pray, Lord, that as we look to him as an example, we would recognize that you've placed the same call in our lives. Help us to be steadfast, to never give up proclaiming the light of Christ to a dark world. Amen.